Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Piki mai, kaki mai, and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world. Honeybees are having a very hard time of it. There is lots of talk of disappearing bees and colony collapse disorder. Pesticides and insecticides are partly to blame. And some recent New Zealand research shows that even when pesticide levels aren't high enough to outright kill bees, they might still be having insidious, sublethal effects. University of Otago zoologists Elodie Erlacher and Sue Michelson-Heath have been collaborating with chemist Kimberly Hackman. They've been looking at the effect of the pesticide chlorpyrifos on bees, and I join them at some inner-city beehives on the roof of the zoology department to find out more. So you're zipped into your bee suit? Yes, ready to collect the bees. So I just have a jam jar, and I'm just going to place it in front of the hive. Uh, the bees are really busy. They're out foraging, so some of them are coming back with mostly nectar because I don't see the pollen on their legs. And I can just place the jar in front of the hive, and the bees that are going out for foraging will just get trapped. So you can see it's going to take like five seconds. So this is just a show and tell for a proper experiment. How many would you take? I usually do about uh, 50 a day. And I have the whole protocol set up for um, testing their learning and memory. So it's associative learning. And it's what they use in the field to um, be efficient in foraging. Because even though you can see flowers and they all look very attractive, they're not. So most of the flowers only produce pollen or nectar during a a short period of time. So in order to be uh, most efficient, the bees are better off learning which flowers to target to get their reward, which would be like pollen or nectar. And the way they do that is that they can learn lots of the feature of the flower, so they can learn its color, they can learn its shape, they can learn lots of things. But one of the most reliable cues they're using is the odor, the scent. Great, well let's go inside and tether some bees. Yes. So we're back inside. You've just put the bees on ice just to cool them down and make them a bit more manageable. While we wait for them to cool down, can you tell me about the work that you're doing with the bees? So we've recently published a paper that was aiming to understand uh, the effect of pesticides on bees and more specifically uh, chlorpyrifos and also specifically for New Zealand. So we partnered with uh, Kim to uh, measure the pesticide in the field and then relate that to experiments in the lab because one of the main criticisms uh, when working with pesticides is whether you actually use doses that have some relevance to what, what the exposure is in the field. So can you tell me a little bit about this pesticide? It is an organophosphate insecticide. It's used on lots of different crops in New Zealand and around the world. And one thing that interests me about it is that it's relatively volatile. So that means that after it's sprayed on a field, a portion of it is going to volatilize and move off this off-site, and it may deposit 
back in the environment at sites far away from where it was originally sprayed. Now, the degree to which it volatilizes depends on lots of different environmental factors, including the temperature and properties of the plants and properties of the soil. But in general, it's one of those pesticides that we can measure in small concentrations, even in the Southern Alps, even in the Arctic. In snow, I personally have measured it in snow in the Arctic. So it really travels around through the air to distant places. The important question is just because you measure it in the environment somewhere, that doesn't mean it's necessarily causing any problems. And from our previous work, you wouldn't really be able to easily calculate a dose for a bee. But that's what this study was really about. So we collected bees, that was for the first time, from many different hives around Otago, and then we measured chlorpyrifos in the bees, so that was the first time we did that. And then we knew exactly then how much pesticide was in an individual bee body, and then we compared that to the amount that we knew from the lab studies would cause a problem in terms of the learning and memory. What kind of doses are we talking about here? The concentrations that we measured in the field were in the picograms per bee. So that seems very low. And the LD50, which is the concentration that would, or the dose that would, you know, kill half of your bees, is 100 nanograms, so much, much higher. So if we're looking at were the concentrations that we measured in the bees high enough to kill bees, most likely not. However, the concentrations, those picogram per bee levels that we measured in the field, uh, were the same doses that in the lab did cause especially the effects on the memory. So if you look at the concentrations or the masses per bee in the field and you overlap that with the masses per bee that actually caused a problem, there was an overlap. So it's not the first time people have measured chlorpyrifos in bees. So people have done that in other parts of the world. So we know already that it does accumulate in the bee bodies. However, this is the first time that we linked a field study like this to a lab study, and that's really what's different about it, is that we really tried to figure out the concentrations that we find, are they likely to be causing a problem. But it's still, you do have to keep in mind that the memory tests were done in a lab. It may not completely translate to the field. So there's still a lot of work to do, which we're excited to do. But we don't know all the answers yet, but the fact that those concentrations overlapped is really interesting and concerning. Did all the hives you tested have chlorpyrifos in them, or just a few? We looked at bees throughout central Otago because it's an area where we have very diverse agricultural usage, and we felt that if we were going to find it, that was as good a place as any. And it's used uh, a lot in controlling some insects that are endemic to that area. There's a small hemiptera called Dionysius, which uh, is found in lucerne and other plants and is a target species for this uh, pesticide usage. And we were lucky enough to uh, sample 27 different apiaries, uh, and at each of those we took samples from three beehives and randomly chose these and then had a look at the results and about 17% of the beehives that we looked at had measurable levels of chlorpyrifos in the bees themselves 
and 12% of the apiaries overall. So the levels that we found were quite considerably lower than, for example, those that have been found in the States, but we were still quite surprised to find uh, that these levels were present. And then we wanted to see whether we could replicate these same levels in syrup solutions in the laboratory and feed them to bees to see what kind of response this sort of dosage would produce. Uh, and that's where Elodie came in with her behavioural studies. So have the bees cooled down enough? Yeah, you can see they're completely um, immobile. Mm -hmm. So I can like put them out of the jar. And then we have these small harnesses that are made of metal tube. Basically just tucking it in nicely, like you're putting it in a wee sleeping bag and its head is sticking out. Yes, exactly. So then when you've got them harnessed, then you can run through the, mm. exposing them to an odour, giving them a reward. So you puff an odour uh, to a bee and then you reward the bee with a bit of uh, sucrose solution. Uh, so you deliver this with a toothpick, you gently touch the antennae of the bee and it's a reflex for a hungry bee. She's going to extend her tongue and lick the toothpick with the sucrose. Here we go, so the tongue comes out. Yeah, so you can see this one's hungry. And if you repeat that association several times, so the order first and then the, the reward, the bee is going to associate the reward with the sucrose and then she's going to extend her tongue, her proboscis, in response to the order. If you do it once, you already have like 70% or 60% of bees responding. So we usually do like four, three or five trials, repeat that several times and you can see the bees, like more and more bees respond. So you can see clearly a response. Uh, Bees learn well, and in our studies, only the highest dose of uh, crop pyrifos had a large effect on learning, and then uh, lower doses um, had some effect that were not as, as bad. So, I mean, it's not surprising, um, but I don't find this, uh, this is the most interesting part of the studies because it's, I mean, if we decrease learning by 10%, might not have a huge effect at the hive level. But another aspect of the study is that we also measured the memory of the bees. So uh, one hour after they've been trained to respond to this order, we put them back into the setup and present uh, this order again. And not surprisingly, the bees uh, respond, they remember. But what is very important for being in a natural context is to remember the right order. And so we can easily do that in the lab by presenting the bees with chemicals that are really uh, similar to the order that they uh, learned or slightly different. And we know in the field that the bees are able to even distinguish between two varieties of the same species. So they're really good at discriminating orders. And uh, the main finding were of this study is that tiny dose of adacroperifos could completely interfere with the specificity of the memory. So the bees that had been um, exposed to the pesticide tended to um, respond to all orders and not just the specific one they had been trained to. In terms of consequence on the field, it would mean that the bee would still go out foraging, so from the outside it looks like everything's going fine, but she might take longer to find a source. Yeah, that's quite concerning because scent is really the major uh, cue the bee rely on to find uh, food uh, in the field. So I imagine it would be more of a problem for the bee. You know, it might be fine on a fine day, but if it's you know a cold, wet day at the end of summer and they're, they're actually working really hard and it's 
not being as effective for them because they can't remember where to go. Yeah, but the reason why they're introduced in New Zealand and not considered a pest, it's because of their pollination service. And um, in order to pollinate the bees, I need to visit the same species. If a bee is trying to cross-pollinate uh, apple with a cherry, it's not going to make a cross between them. It's not going to work. And that's why bees are used, because they have what we call flower constancy, that they stick to one species for a given uh, time. And that's why they're efficient pollinator. So if pesticide expo exposure um, impairs their memory specificity, that olfactory memory specificity could have some consequence in terms of pollination. I mean, it's not huge, but it's one factor, and the bees are exposed to multiple stresses, so it's just adding one more to the mix of things we have to deal with. I mean, Vaura is obviously yeah, a very important one as well, and we're not saying it's all pesticides problem, but it's just one more factor. I think the main message I would like to get across is that so far like, regulation on pesticides is mainly relying on uh, lethal effects. But uh, for crop peripherals for this pesticide, uh, LD50 is 100 nanogram, and we had some significant effect with 50 picograms, which is way lower. So I would like to change and try to convince people that the behavior of the animal and the sublethal effects are important because uh, we all agree that a dead bee is not going to pollinate or produce manuka honey, but a bee that uh, can't go back to the hive that has navigation problem, a bee that has locomotion problem, a bee that has deficits in learning, a bee that has bad memory is not going to be a good pollinator either. And you're looking at the physiology, Sue, so what are you going to be doing or what are you doing? I'm going to be looking first of all at bees in the field and again doing measurements of levels of chlorpyrifos in them, but we're going to expose some bees in a trial. Uh, we've um, nominated a crop we're going to plant which is called Facelia tenacitifolium and we're going to plant it next spring and we're going to uh, examine the bees prior to being introduced to this and keep a track of levels if there are, is any chlorpyrifos, any background levels. And we're going to make the assumption that probably there isn't, but when we move them to the site and we observe the stand-down period that's recommended by the manufacturers and then bring them into the uh, area that's been sprayed, we want to find out whether it's going to accumulate in the body of bees. So that's going to be the next stage of sort of examining what the long-term effect is on the bee, whether if there's continued exposure, whether it builds up, what tissues that it tends to accumulate in. And it's a lipophilic compound, which means that it's attracted to and absorbed into fatty tissue. So it may affect things like the brain, the ovaries, um, the fat deposits. And we want to really have a look and see what that effect may be long term and whether it produces general uh, indicators of stress. And we know from other stress uh, events that there are markers, particularly in the hemolymph, which is really like our blood serum, that we can have a look at these levels and see what's happening. So. Uh, as I think Elodie said before, it's not just chlorpyrifos, it's not just pesticides, it's this cumulative cocktail that bees are exposed to 
and I, I don't think there's any one cause of colony collapse disorder, but there, there's an, an, a myriad of um, stressors in the environment these days, not the least of which, as Elodie said, is Varroa. So it's just filtering out these individual effects and trying to learn you know, what kind of impact these individually might have. You've had some good results from the lab. Are you going to be doing more field work now? Yes, definitely. Apart from the flower study, we want to do as many field trials of as many aspects of learning as we can so that we're actually working with live foragers in a real situation and we're going to do some feeding stations which are colour-coded and have particular odours that they will have to differentiate between. We're hoping that they'll learn where they are rewarded with syrup and where they're not and associate it with an odour. So we can do tests of the live bees as they are accumulating uh, chlorpyrifos in our studies. So that's one thing that we're going to do. But we want to nut out as many as possible that we can do because we want to get away from just the artificial situation of the laboratory and anything that we can think of that's you know, applicable to hive management and working also with uh, contractors and farmers and beekeepers so that there's a better dialogue about when these chemicals are being used. We're not sort of taking umbrage with usage of chemicals, but we are really keen that people observe the stand-down periods and they look at the times when you know there's high airflow and they avoid windy occasions and at times when it's going to be distributed outside its target area. So it's that really strong adherence to the regulatory conditions of the use is really important for pollinators and for bee health in general. Yeah. That was zoology PhD student Sue Michelson-Heath in the zoology department at the University of Otago. We also heard from postdoctoral researcher Elodie Erlacher and from Kimberly Hagman, who's in the chemistry department at the University of Otago. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web. rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.